Well, before we open up God's word, would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come to you now. We come to you the only way we can in the name of Christ. Father, we come with hearts in need of you to speak to us now through your word. We need you, Father, to to speak to us by your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word, that we would be more like Christ. We ask that you would grab hold of our hearts now and incline it to yours, not to any selfish gain, not to any false motives. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see your glory and beauty and majesty in your Word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would unite our hearts here as one family in Christ to your heart, God. That you would help us fear your name rightly. That as we hear your truth and see your glory, that our hearts would be satisfied with your love. And that you would lead us into all truth and understanding. Help mature us and conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to be faithful men and women of God, but in order to do so, we need your saving and sanctifying grace at work in us. And so we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can. That is take the hearts of men and women and shape them into the heart of Christ. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. And may we all walk out of this worship service this morning, having magnified you in your glory and worshiped you in spirit and truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. So today we're continuing to look at the end of Colossians chapter 4. And in these final verses of Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been giving his final instructions and his final greetings to the church there. And as we started to look at last week and continue this week, Paul's been listing a group of men that he's been in ministry with. A group of men that have been faithful with him in ministry. Some of them we know more about than others. Some of them we know nothing really about. But what we do know and can be certain of is that as Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome to the church in Colossae, the men that he lists here have been faithful to the call that God has put on their life. They have been faithful servants of God. And so this message is a continuation of last where we've been looking at this idea of what is it What is a faithful servant? And faithfulness to God comes from recognizing a very simple but very profound truth. And that truth is that you are not your own, but you you belong completely to God. Listen to how the theologian John Calvin states this. Quote, we are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason nor our will should predominate in our deliberations and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not propose it as our end to seek what may be expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. 
Therefore, let us, as far as possible, forget ourselves and all things that are ours. On the contrary, we are gods. To him, therefore, let us live and die. We are gods. Therefore, let his wisdom and will preside in all our actions. We are gods towards him, therefore, as our only legitimate end. Let every part of our lives be directed, end quote. What John Calvin is saying there is what we have been seeing in the life of Paul and his companions. That their lives, every part of their lives was directed to be faithful to the will and work of God. And so our big idea this morning is if you and I are to be found faithful in all that God has called us to, that we must surround ourselves with faithful people who recognize that their lives are not their own. So let's look at Philippians, uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter four now. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you have received instructions if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Real quickly, let me set the stage here. Paul mentions six men, and these six men break up actually into two very distinct groups. The first three names is the first group, and they are all Jewish men. The second three names, the second group, are Gentiles. And so we have two groups of men here that are with the Apostle Paul. We have three faithful Jewish Christians and three faithful Gentile Christians. And what's important to realize is that they're all brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because the gospel transcends people groups, social classes, and everything else our society says should divide us. And so Paul lumps them together here. And so let's go one by one and start looking at these, these men that Paul is listing and what we can learn from them. The first is Aristarchus. Again, we said last week, does anybody know who Tychicus is? Second question, does anybody know who Aristarchus is? Can anybody spell the name properly even, right? We're first introduced to him in the book of Acts. If you'd turn with me to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, verse 29, we read, And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. This is taking place on the heels of the riot that broke out in Ephesus when Paul was there and he began teaching against the idolatry that was happening. 
And one of the, the, the silversmith there really gets upset about this. And he starts being very vocal. Next thing you know, a riot's breaking out. And in verse 29, we see that these three men were there. He's with him in the midst of a chaotic riot. And he's right alongside Paul. Then in Acts chapter 20, just a chapter later, verse 4, <clears throat> we read, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundius of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Here we read, now Paul has no longer with him in Ephesus, but Paul is going to travel with um, Aristarchus is going to travel with Paul to Greece. And then in Acts chapter 27, we read this of Aristarchus. Acts chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Now, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And getting aboard an Adramitian ship, which is about to set sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we set sail accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So Paul now, now Paul is going to be sent off to Rome, and Aristarchus is with him. And in Rome, it's where he will be imprisoned and put to death. It's not going to be a, a vacation. Situations and circumstances are difficult, but Aristarchus is right next to him. And so this is why in Colossians now, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Because he's with him right there while Paul's in his imprisonment. Aristarchus is what we used to call, when I was in the army, a ride or die kind of friend. He's going to be with you. The highs and lows, I ain't going nowhere. At any point, Aristarchus could have backed out. He didn't have to go. Instead, he is sitting in prison with the Apostle Paul for the mission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and what makes this so astounding by Aristarchus is that he didn't have to be in prison. He volunteered. He volunteered because he knew that if nobody's with Paul, who's going to care for Paul? Who's going to help him? Who's going to get Paul the, need, the things he needs? So he volunteers for this. Aristarchus doesn't choose freedom over faithfulness. That's an important truth for us as Americans who seem sometimes more preoccupied with our freedom as American citizens, than our faithfulness as citizens of the kingdom of God. We must be faithful, and Aristarchus models this. Did he have a wife? Did he have kids? Did he have an elderly father and mother he had to care for? We don't know. And we don't know because it doesn't matter. Because then today, faithfulness to God trumps everything. And so we see Aristarchus here with him, a fellow prisoner. Verse goes on, fellow prisoners send you his greetings and also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. 
I want to linger on Mark for a little bit. I want us to really turn our attention there because Mark is one of those guys that should give all of us in this sanctuary hope. You see, Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas was the man that first begins to disciple and mentor Paul. He goes from being the one who's discipling him. They become peers in the ministry. And eventually Paul rises above Barnabas in responsibility and authority. And Barnabas isn't jealous about that. Barnabas is a great encourager. And Mark is his cousin. And Mark has accompanied the apostle Paul now and Barnabas to to do ministry to a place called Perga in Pamphylia. And so they get there. But when they get there, something happens. We don't know exactly what. And Mark says, not for me. And he heads back to Jerusalem. He leaves. And Mark leaving really does not sit well with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as we've been seeing, he's a very intense, singular-focused individual. Paul is one of those guys that's not looking for faint-hearted men. He wants lion-hearted men. And when he looks at when he looks at the actions of Mark, he writes him off. If we were to turn to Acts chapter 15, we see how, how much this bothered the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 36 through 41, we read of the interaction that came about because of Mark's Mark's leaving. We don't, I don't want to impose motive on him. Starting at verse 36, Acts 15. Now, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there was such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's a sharp disagreement here. Paul and Barnabas, they were close. They had really gone through it. They had weathered some some wars for the gospel together. So whatever it was that had caused Mark to turn back and leave when they got to Pamphylia, it really bothered Paul. Barnabas, it doesn't surprise me. Barnabas is an encourager. Barnabas is the, the guy who always wants to give people second chances. But there was something that happened there that Paul's like, he's not mature enough to go with us on mission. So now we fast forward 12 years later and we find ourselves in the book of Colossians. And 12 years later, we see Paul right here and also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Somehow God had worked it out that the relationship between Paul and uh, and Mark had been reconciled. So much so that Paul now looks at Mark. He says, you're not who you were. I see you as a faithful brother in the ministry. 
And this is what the gospel ought to produce in everyone. Those who have been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ must be reconciled to one another. Let me repeat that. Those who have been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ must be reconciled to one another. Paul and Mark are both blood-bought sons of God that are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and therefore they're united to one another. So reconciliation must happen. We saw this earlier in the book of Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1 verses 20 and 21, we read, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly formally alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, but he has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The gospel took root and reconciled these two brothers. <clears throat> I'll just say, if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, but you're refusing to be reconciled to a fellow brother or sister in the faith for whatever wrong or disagreement or misunderstanding took place, you're still not understanding the power and implication of the gospel. Mark is a beautiful picture of this. Church history tradition says Mark ended up having a really strong gospel ministry in Rome. And it's from Rome that he did most of his writing. And of course, it only God would work it as such that Mark, who abandons Paul, ends up being Mark, who writes to us our second gospel account in our New Testament. That's an amazing testimony to how God works and changes men. The last faithful uh, brother here he mentions of, Jew of Jewish background is Justice. Also, we don't know much about him. We know next to nothing about him. We know he's ethnically Jewish, and we know he was faithful. And in some ways, you have to ask, isn't that enough? Isn't it enough to know there was an ordinary man who was an extraordinary example of faithfulness? So these are the three men that Paul mentions, and then he goes on to say here, in the second half of verse 11, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they've proved to be a comfort for me. Fellow workers, circumcision, what's Paul talking about here? Among ethnic national Jews, Paul's saying they're really the faithful few. When he says from the circumcision, he's, he's making point to the fact that these men are not necessarily religiously Jewish, but they're nationally, ethnically Jewish. And during this time when Paul's writing this, Gentiles were far more willing and desirous to mix and integrate with Jewish believers than Jewish believers were willing to integrate with Gentile ones. The Gentiles were, the Jews were still wanting the Gentiles to adhere to circumcision as an identifying mark of their faith. 
And so tensions are really, really high here. And Paul says, in the midst of this, these are the only three guys. Only three ethnic Jewish guys I know that are willing to lock arms with me in ministry for the gospel to the Gentiles. Give us a little insight on how difficult it must have been for Paul. He wasn't exactly, we tend to think he was very popular, but it was rough ground, especially we see in Romans 9 how much he desires to see his fellow brothers, his kinsmen redeemed. Paul was not popular among the Jews. Only three are hanging with him right now. But these three, he says, are workers for the kingdom of God. And just imagine those three men having to cut against the grain, swim upstream, stand against the predominant view of their brothers. You're going to lock arms with him who's saying that Gentiles don't need to do this? Yeah, that's what we're doing. They're faithful. And so because these three men are focused on the kingdom of God, they're focused on everything they do being about extending the rule and reign of Christ among the nations. Now, kingdom of God, how do we define that? Kingdom of God is interesting because there's, a, there's an already but not yet component of it. There is a sense when the kingdom of God is here and now, at this very moment. There's a portion of the kingdom, but it's not here in its fullness. See, Jesus is ruling and reigning now in the hearts of the church. But even in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are continuing to pray that the rule and reign of Christ will extend more and more and more in the lives of people all over the world. And there will be a day where the kingdom will be here fully when Jesus will crack the sky. His saving work will be finished. Sin will fully be dealt with. He will renew all things and everybody that is of his people will be with him in the new heavens and earth. So when they say that they are doing the work of the kingdom of God, this is the work that we should be engaged in. It is the work of seeing more men and women bow the knee to Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what these men were committed to. They were committed to Paul to the extent that Paul was committed to God. And then Paul says they were also a comfort to him. Because they cared for him while he was in prison. So what do we learn from these three men, these first three Jewish men? Let's start with Aristarchus. Let me ask this challenge question to all of us. Would you right now, here now, 2022, would you go to prison with and for the brothers and sisters in this room if you didn't have to? If you didn't have to, would you do it? Would you walk away from family, friends, loved ones? career, children, because you knew this brother or sister is going to be imprisoned for being faithful to the Lord. And if nobody's with them, they're not going to be cared for. Would you pull an Aristarchus and say, I'm going with you? Or would you not and simply say, I'll pray for you, brother. 
see when you get out. True faith in Christ produces Aristarchus-like faithfulness and sacrifice. We are to love and sacrifice for one another the way Christ has the way Christ loves us and is sacrificed for us. You see, the gospel isn't just about the forgiveness of our sins, but it's also about enabling to love one another as Christ loves us. And love, by definition, will be costly and sacrificial. So again, really think about that. You know, we live in America. We don't really have to worry much about that scenario. But let's say you lived in a different part of the world, in a third world country, in a closed country where being aligned with Christ was was a prison sentence. North Korea, maybe parts in in the 1040 window in the Middle East. And they kick in the doors right now. And they ask who the leadership is. And you know that once they arrest leadership, they're not going to food, clothing, medical, whatever. It's basically just going to, the only reason you'll have that is if I'm the goodwill of somebody caring for you. How many of us would really say, okay, I'm going to go with them. I'm going to hug and kiss my loved ones goodbye. And I don't know if I'm making it out. I don't know when I'm getting up, but I'm going. That was the cost that Aristarchus paid. And that was the cost every Christian in the early church would have to have considered. And that is what brothers and sisters in different parts of the world today have to really consider. They really have to count the cost. For them, being a part of the church wasn't about good coffee, treats, and sitting around for Bible study. It was about counting the cost in sacrificing to care for one another and to see men and women come to faith. Aristarchus, there isn't much said there, but what is said there, if you linger and meditate on it, is important. And then we have Mark. You know what's so powerful about this interaction here that Paul mentions Mark? He mentions in a couple other places is that Mark reminds us that no one's story is over if they hold fast to Christ. No one's story, your story's not over. If you by faith are holding on to Jesus, and more importantly, by faith are having Jesus hold on to you. God can always restore us and use us for his kingdom purposes. And that is what we see in Mark. From deserter to devoted. Each and every one of us has a Mark moment in our life, don't we? There was a moment where we're supposed to step forward in courage and boldness and conviction, and we shrink back. We've all had that moment, and if you haven't, you will. And at that moment, you can begin thinking, God will never use me. How could I? All the doubts, the enemy will seek and sin will seek to just whisper more and more so that you shrink back and back and further back until nobody can see you. But what Mark shows us here, what Mark's life teaches us, is that if we seek to submit to Christ, 
If we seek and resolve by prayer to be faithful, then Christ will restore us and he will use us. And that moment of shrinking back will become a testimony to encourage others in their moment not to. Mark's life is a story of how the gospel restores and redeploys him. And it can be the same for us. Those are the first three men. Those are the first three faithful servants. Now we look to the next three faithful servants. These next three are the Gentile ones. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hariopolis. Let's look at Epaphras first. We were introduced into Epaphras when we first started this book in, in chapter 1, verse 7. In Colossians 1, 7, it reads, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. A little background on Epaphras in case we've forgotten who he was and what he did. About 10 years earlier, Paul was in Ephesus preaching the gospel, teaching everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Epaphras comes to faith. God opens his heart. And upon hearing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does Epaphras do? He gets serious about his faith. He becomes a disciple and he takes the gospel back to Colossae. He begins sharing the gospel to the people in Colossae and then he ends up planting the church there. Epaphras is the church planter of the church in Colossae. And as we'll see, these, the mention here of Laodicea and Hariopolis, it appears he founded those churches too. See, Epaphras didn't view the message of Christ simply as salvation for me. Wow, Christ saved me. I want to be more like Jesus. No, Paul preached the gospel in such a way that Epaphras understood the implications. I can't let this just sit with me. The gospel isn't supposed to come to me. I'm not a cul-de-sac for the gospel. I'm a conduit for the gospel. I'm going to take it back home. I'm going to proclaim because what has happened to me needs to happen to them. He knew this was a message everybody needed. And Paul said here in, in verse 12, who's one of your number, he's reminding them, this is one of your people. He's from where you're from. And he's a slave of Christ Jesus. Slave of Christ. We've talked about slave a couple times in these last few messages. But it bears repeating when he says that Epaphras is a slave of Christ Jesus, he's wanting them to remember Epaphras was bought with a price. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body 
Epaphras now, as a slave of Christ Jesus, I have no option. I have to go back. I have to preach. I have to toil on behalf of these people because it's not about me. That's what my master, my Lord has commanded. Therefore, I have to glorify him in that work. Epaphras is a man fully devoted to the will of Christ. So it could be said the will of Epaphras is simply the will of Christ. And it should be for each of us. We don't have a, we shouldn't even have our own will. We should so not matter to ourselves. And we should be so consumed with Jesus and his will that our will is his very will. And to the degree it's not, we should repent and, and submit under it. And look what Paul says about this slave of Christ Jesus. He wants to remind the church here, always striving for you in his prayers. A Epaphras was what we would call today a prayer warrior. No one else in this entire section in Colossians 4 is described in the manner that Epaphras is. And he says, always striving. See, prayer is not a casual part of his life. It's the constant part of his life. Epaphras actually modeled what we saw a few weeks earlier in Colossians 4.2. Devote yourself to prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And so this is what he's known for. Epaphras prays and prays and prays some more. And Paul uses a very powerful word here. He says, striving. I don't typically make reference to the Greek that it was written in, but the word here is just one of those really cool words. Agonizomai. You can also hear the English word of agonize in there. The word means to, to labor earnestly to wrestle with it's the same word used of jesus in luke twenty two forty four when he's praying in the garden when he says he was in agony while he was praying and sweating droplets of blood to be striving in prayer means that you are putting forth some really serious effort there is discipline there is conviction there is blood earnestness involved when Epaphras prayed, it cost him. He wasn't simply pouring out words. He was pouring out his very soul in prayer. When Epaphras walked into prayer, he was one way. When he walked out, there was an emotional depletion that happened. Have you ever prayed on behalf of God's people in such a way that when you leave prayer, you almost, you're emotionally exhausted? Because you so strived on behalf of them. Epaphras didn't simply pray with his head. He prayed with his heart. He toiled on their behalf. He wrestled as Jacob wrestled. He came out of there limping. He agonized in prayer on behalf of his people. The church needs more prayerful agonizers and less entrepreneurial organizers. Because that's what we are so impressed by. But where are the, where are the agonizers at? 
Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, everybody loves to esteem. Somebody asked him once, what was the, what was the secret to his preaching? He said, under these feet downstairs in the basement, as I'm preaching, there is people praying for me. They were praying as he's preaching, agonizing for the spirit of God to work through that man. What was he praying for? What was it? What was Epaphras praying for? Last part of verse 12, that you may stand complete and fully assured in the will of God, in all the will of God. To stand, that means to be fully established, to be, to be steadfast, to be anchored in, to be firmly rooted. To be complete means to be full grown. It's describing a person of spiritual maturity, not a child. And to be fully assured means to be confident, to be thoroughly convinced in all the will of God. What does all the will of God mean? It means what God has revealed in his word, commanded through his word, and demands of them in his word. Paul is saying, to the, Epaphras is praying with all that he very is, with the very fiber of his soul. He's praying on behalf of you that you would grow up into spiritual maturity, into spiritual understanding, and be so grounded in the truth of Christ that you would know you lack nothing. Because Epaphras knows that's how I have to be praying for them because there's false teaching and false teachers seeking to take these people captive and pull them away. And so I have to be praying that they are mature, anchored in, firm, strong, steadfast, immovable. So when the false teachers come, they're not lured away. It's an amazing thing to save a man. It is amazing to know that the man who planted this church is striving in prayer, not focused on growth strategies. He goes on to say of Epaphras in verse 13, for I testify for him, right? I'm speaking on his behalf. Put me on the witness stand. This is what I'm saying. He has a deep concern for you and for those in Laodicea and Hariopolis. True shepherds are always concerned for their sheep. True shepherds show deep concern. And this concern that they have is displayed in how they pray. True shepherds are marked by persistence and passionate prayer. Yeah, he planted that. He planted those three churches. Why did he plant them? He didn't plant them because as a fresh seminary graduate, he, it was the only ministry move available. I don't want to waste my degree. There's no job openings. I'm going to go plant some church. That's not why he did it. He didn't plant the church because he's like, you know, that's the, that's the in thing to do. Right? We have a resurgence of church planting. Let's do that. He didn't plant it because he said, you know, it'd be really cool to be the first of a thing here. Sure, everybody remember that one. He planted those churches because his heart was broken. That the very forgiving, restoring grace he received was not known among these people. And so he knew that he would have to give his life for helping men and women experience the deliverance that he had received. And so the church of Colossae has his very heart. 
True ministers like Epaphras devote not only their time and energy into the church, but they devote their very heart to the church. When the hearts of the people in Colossae hurt, his heart hurts. When harmful teachings begin to surface, concern grips his heart. And in all of it, how does, how does Epaphras fight? He fights in prayer. Paul is essentially saying, how do you know your pastor cares for you, Colossians? You know your pastor cares for you. Not by assuming he does, but by, I'm telling you, because he prays for you. He prays for you and he agonizes for you. Paul wants the believers in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis to know the heart of their pastor for them. Then he mentions Luke. In verse 14, he just says, Luke, a beloved physician. We don't know, doesn't say much there. That's the only reason we know Luke was a doctor. But this is the same Luke who wrote our third gospel. He's the only Gentile to write a book in the New Testament. We see Paul has a lot of affection for him. He calls him beloved. And in other parts, we see he cared for Paul, so he's faithful. And the last person he mentions is Demas. And I want to pause here because Demas, in our message this morning, is a word of warning for all of us. Here's a man that we should all learn from. Why? Because even though he's listed here among these faithful men, in three to four years, he's going to abandon Paul. He's going to abandon the Lord. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 about Demas. Demas... Having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Loving this present world. Demas' heart was not in Christ, but in the world. Demas reminds us that you cannot both love Christ and love the world. That word deserted, he completely abandoned Paul. In 2 Timothy's Paul's final letter, before he's put to death for his faith, in that darkest moment, in that hardest moment, Demas says, I'm out. Such a difference than Aristarchus. Aristarchus says, no, I'm going with you. If they're going to take your head, maybe they take mine. Aristarchus says, you know what? There's a whole lot in the world that I'm going to miss out on. I'm not, I'm not ready for this yet. Loving this present world, the creaturely comforts more than he loves his Savior. Demas, in the end, did not want to pay the price of being a true follower of Jesus. And so in Demas, we learn two really important lessons. Time reveals character. Time reveals character. It's interesting that he mentions Demas in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 4. Because a couple verses earlier in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, listen to what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Guess who's not getting that crown? Demons. Time reveals character. Put another way, it doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. If Mark was a picture of restoration, Demas is a picture of rejection. Demas rejected what was asked of him. So in the midst of all the, and the sad thing is, as he's writing Colossians, at that moment, Demas is somewhat faithful. I suspect, and so do some others, that Paul had his suspicions already. Because if you look at how he talks about all these men here, when it comes to Demas, he just says, and also Demas, no beloved, no fellow slave, just, and that guy. We'll see. We'll see. Never think that because you're so on fire for the Lord now that you won't be a Demas. You have to avail yourself. It is work. It is striving. It is agonizing. It is humility. It is dependence. It is fear of God. We need all those things to contend for the faith. Christ will never let us go. We can have assurance of our salvation, but the assurance of our salvation is demonstrated by our repentance, submission, and humility to God and his word. You can have assurance that Christ has really saved you if as you continue in this life of faith, your love for the world is diminishing, not increasing. If you find your love for the world increasing and not diminishing, then the warning lights should be going off and you need to sit down and do business with the Lord. You need to sit down with an elder. You need to express your concerns. We need to take inventory of your life and we need to do the heart, the heart surgery work. It's a word for all of us. So as we, that's, that's the section. What does Epaphras teach us? Epaphras is a, a wonderful example that even though not all of us can preach, even though not all of us can teach, even though not all of us are amazing evangelists or great apologists that can refute the false teachings of the day, all of us can give ourselves to be striving in prayer for the church. That's a spiritual gift we all have. We can all pray. We can all strive in prayer as Epaphras did. Prayer is warfare. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Prayer is warfare. Because Satan does not want us praying to God. And every time we do pray, we are actually engaging in spiritual warfare. We're firing out shots against the darkness. So take a moment and evaluate your prayer life. Maybe Satan is so good at his job that the way he keeps you from growing in your faith isn't by enticing you with such flagrant sin, but just keeping you from prayer. I won't get you caught up in all the ugly sin. That's obvious. I'll just keep you from depending on God and communing with him in prayer. A prayerless Christian is a contradiction in terms. So we have to be a praying people. 
And one of the beautiful things about prayer, and we see in Epaphras, is prayer can never be taken from you. They can take your Bibles. They can take your family. They can take your money. They can throw you in a hole in the ground. That's where Paul is. What can they never take from you? Your ability to commune with God in prayer. So guess what? You're always, your resources don't determine your usefulness to the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter about your bank account. Doesn't matter about your education levels. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. Can you pray? If you can pray, then you can call down power from the omnipotent God on behalf of his kingdom. So here's a hard word worth considering. And know I say it with a heart of love. If you characteristically are not a praying Christian, then perhaps you're simply playing Christian. Characteristically, if your life is marked by a lack of prayer, then there's a potential chance, a good chance, that maybe you haven't really been saved. And I say that because if you really love somebody, you can care, you cannot characteristically avoid having fellowship with them, relationship with them, communication with them. I've often said, how can I say I love my wife and say, hey, maybe I'll talk to you once a month? Can't say that. Can't tell my children I love them and never want to talk to them. You can't talk to somebody just when you need them to do something for you. Communication is the natural outpouring of relationship. And so if your life as a follower of Christ is characteristically defined by a lack of prayer, then maybe you don't have Christian life. Then we have Demas. And so to reiterate, we need to persevere in the faith. We need to fight the good fight. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work in us. We need to give ourselves to the word of God and to the work of God. And I'll repeat what I said. It's not about how well you start. It's about how you finish. I don't care if you shot out like a rocket in your Christian faith and grew. You know what, man, I, I learned so much early on. I, I took all these courses. I went to Christian schools. I, I, I know more about the Bible than, this, than almost everybody else I'm around. I'm good. No, you might just be an educated devil. You have to finish well. You have to finish the race. You have to fight the good fight. Demas didn't. So brothers and sisters, if we are to be faithful followers of Christ, then one of the things we have to realize here is the company we keep matters. Look at who Paul kept around him. Look how instrumental they were, not only to the ministry, but to his own comforting of soul. If you and I are to be found faithful in everything we've been called to, then we need to surround ourselves with faithful people of God who love him and are living for him. With the exception of Demas, everybody who served as a warning, each of these men were examples of faithfulness to God while helping Paul in his ministry. And that's what we're called to. We're called to faithfulness. We're not called to success. We're not called to fame. We're not called to be receive recognition. We're not called to prosperity. We're not called to, to leave some, to have a dynasty and leave some legacy. We're called to faithfulness to Christ and his name is all that matters. 
God may give some of us bigger platforms than others. And God may call some of us to operate in the background, never seen in support of others. But wherever he places us, we are called to faithfully serve him because it's about him. So let me quote, let me close now with a quote from uh, theologian Ian Murray, who summarizes this very well. Quote, faithfulness to God is our first obligation in all that we are called to do in the service of the gospel. One more time, let me read that. Faithfulness to God is our first obligation in all that we are called to do in the service of the gospel, end quote. With that, let's close in prayer. Father God, we come before you in the name of Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, recognizing that what you desire from your slaves, your servants, your people, is always faithfulness. Lord, we we thank you, I thank you, that Paul didn't end his letter where he did, but that he listed these men. Because this shows us the humanity of our faith. It shows us real people, imperfect people, people that are, are being sanctified, but it shows us them faithfully contending for your glory and your mission. Father, I pray that we would have that loyalty, allegiance to to your cause as Aristarchus did. I pray that we would love one another in such a a way that if we have to sacrifice all to go with them, we would. Father, I pray that all of us in our, our mark moments where we shrink back would remember that if we confess, repent, trust, and humble ourselves, you will restore us and use us. I pray, Lord, that we would be like Epaphras and that we would be resolved to fight the good fight in prayer. That we would strive, that we would agonize on behalf of our local church, but the church globally. That we would storm heaven with prayer, Lord. That we would push back the darkness, that we would fight sin and we would fight Satan through prayer. that we would be prayerful agonizers. And I pray that you would guard us from shrinking back, that you would guard us from loving the world and deserting you and our people as Demas did. Lord, we know that if we are of your sheep, you will hold on to us, but we know sin is real. Temptation is powerful. And so strengthen us that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling chiefly because we love you and we would never ever think of what it would be like to desert you. Increase our love for you and kill off our love for the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.